Uh, this quarter, we're looking at the book of Mark. The reason we're looking at the book of Mark is this, is we want to find out who Jesus is. Uh, we want to be dismissed of all the projections we've placed on him, because we all kind of have our own version of Jesus. They're, uh, you know, there are versions of Jesus that are floating around in our minds and in culture, and maybe you hate those versions of Jesus. Maybe you find them attractive. Um, Mark is Peter's secretary. Peter is Jesus' best friend. The book of Mark are the first recorded words in history about Jesus' life. And so we, the goal is really for us to kind of um, find out who he really is and let all of our conceptions about who he is um, kind of be, get retold in light of this story. What we're going to look at tonight is Mark 2, 1 through 12. It might be a passage that's familiar to y'all. Um, we're kind of going to do a chapter or so a week to get through the whole book this quarter. But here's the word of the Lord. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story. Uh, we thank you for the pictures of healing you give us. And I pray as we consider it in light of our story, dear God, we would see something about you that speaks to the heart of our greatest need, dear God. I need your Holy Spirit. We need your Holy Spirit to communicate to us the truths of Scripture. If I say anything foolish, I pray that you would grant us the grace of forgetfulness, dear Lord. Let us only learn from you. In your name we pray. Amen. So here's the question tonight. I'm kind of jump in heavy on this, and it's, it's a fairly serious question. Um, Ginger Chamblin is a dear friend of my wife's family, and she passed away this summer. And in the final months of battling cancer, and it was painful, um, she had tremendous peace and contentment. Uh, she's a dear friend of our family. Her her paintings hang in our house. She painted things for our daughters. Um, just last year, she lost her husband, Knox Chamberlain, to cancer. He is one of the sweetest men you've ever known. He's a tremendous scholar. Uh, he's written a lot of books um, uh, on, on biblical themes, and he's just a preeminent, he was a preeminent New Testament scholar. Ginger nursed him, uh, took care of him through his cancer and watched him die. And a year later, she battled cancer alone. And the question is... Why did the woman who lost everything have so much more peace and security than us, who as a resident of Silicon Valley and as students of Stanford are on the verge of getting everything? Why did somebody who lost everything 
in really painful, dark ways. How come she was, how come she had peace and security? More so than Stanford students, right? More so than Menlo Park residents, people who are in the center of the world where everything is at your fingertips and you are on the verge of getting it all. Twelve years ago now, Elizabeth and I um, went to Kajiado, Kenya, which is a rural town. And we went and stayed in an orphanage for a week. And there are 30 kids at the orphanage. There was a pastor, there was a cook, and there was kind of a matriarch and a patriarch. Uh, these kids had nothing. It was a rural town. Uh, you, can, you can imagine rural orphans in Kenya is a whole new picture of poverty that doesn't even exist in our country. And yet, when they sang, they sang with more joy than I've experienced in my 34 years of life. And it was, it was a disorienting experience to see 30 children who had nothing, not even family, experience more joy than people who had everything. And that's the question that it's irresponsible for us not to deal with. Because you're at Stanford to achieve all your dreams because you believe your dreams will make you happy. How come the people who lost all their dreams are happy? It is irresponsible for you to not answer that question. You can't go out. It's irresponsible for you to walk through life tomorrow and not have dealt with the reality that there are people who have lost everything. And at the bottom, having lost everything, have more joy and more contentment and more happiness than us. Not everybody loses everything. In fact, very few people. But Ginger Chamberlain did. And these children in Kajiado, Kenya did. The people who have none of the things that we want, that we think we need, why do they find contentment? Because they expose our whole life plan. The fact that their story is true exposes our whole life plan. Right? And it's irresponsible for us to then disregard that and go try to conquer our dreams tomorrow, hoping that our dreams are going to be us, make us happy. We've got to deal with this reality. We've got to deal with the reality of Ginger Chamberlain's life. It's not okay for us not to. And in some ways, like, it's almost offensive, right? These children didn't have education, right? They didn't have wealth. They didn't have opportunity. Those are the things we believe in. Those are the things we believe in so hard we fight each other about them, about how to provide them for everybody. And yet they had none of them. And they're happier. Here's how Jesus deals with that question. He deals with it in this text. If, I, if we'd read the rest of chapter 1, Jesus is going around the countryside and he's teaching and healing, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. And people are hearing about him and they want to come to see him. They just want to see what the fuss is all about. He's created a craze, right? And people are equal parts fascinated and suspicious, like any of us would be. If someone was going around the Bay Area and teaching and healing, and then people were coming back and say they're healing people, right? We would be suspicious. I would be suspicious. And we'd also be fascinated, And that's what's happening in Palestine at this time. They're in Capernaum, which is kind of the base of operations for his ministry. It's a packed house, and this is what happens. Four friends do what probably several friends do, uh, had done at this point. They have a paralytic friend, and they just think, we heard this guy heals people, so why not? Uh, Fifteen years ago... um, my uncle was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. If you're familiar with Lou Gehrig's disease, it's terminal. Um, di- uh, upon diagnosis, you have anywhere from kind of six months to seven years. Uh, there's no stopping it. Medicine hasn't done, made any advances in stopping it. And uh, upon being diagnosed with it, my aunt and my uncle did what none of us would fault them for doing. 
they actually heard about a man who's claiming to heal people down in the Gulf Coast. These things still go on in the South. we got some backwoods things. But they heard that this guy is healing people. And you know what they did? He, my uncle's on his way to death. Nothing could stop that. They just went down there to see. And who would blame them, right? We'd do the same thing. If faced with that desperation, we'd all do the same thing. We'll try anything. And it didn't work, but you can't blame them, right? So here's the paralytic. I imagine he's in the same place. Why not? Nothing else works. I heard rumors. I'm not sure what I think about it, but why not try it? Right? So they came to the house and it slammed because everybody's there. Everybody wants to hear what's going on, see what the fuss is about. Houses at this time had flat roofs. You've, maybe you've seen images of these Middle Eastern houses. They're made of mud and thatch and the roof would be flat. They'd have stairs outside of the house that go up to the roof because you have to maintain the roof all the time because it's biodegradable matter. And so Jesus is literally teaching a Bible study inside and in the middle of the Bible study, it's just helpful to imagine the scene, literally the ceiling starts collapsing. You know, like we've had cell phones go off in RUF. Maybe you've been in a lecture where you've heard cell phones go off. Maybe your professors have handled it graciously. You know, maybe not and all that kind of stuff. But there, we... We encounter small distractions. Imagine the ceiling opening up, like plaster falling in. That's literally the moment that's happening right there. And uh, the person I actually thought about when I was reading this is like the homeowner. You know, of all people who's frustrated with this, the homeowner's like, okay, first of all, I'm hosting all of y'all, and I'm not going to get any thank you notes. But then secondly, y'all just decide that my roof is optional, right? (laughs) And then... To not only make it, so the hole opens up, you know, and they look up and they see people's heads peering in. And then the height of awkwardness is this paralytic guy gets lowered down into the middle of the Bible study. And if you've seen Arrested Development, I was reading it and, and I was thinking like, this is just like Job's tricks in Arrested Development or his illusions as they were. And where Job kind of completes this illusion and it's messy and it's nasty. And Job, you're all familiar with the show, Arrested Development. And Job just goes, ta-da. I feel like the paralytic's like on the ground in front of, you know, a hundred people and it's like, ta-da. And if it couldn't get more weird, actually Jesus makes it more awkward. Right? What do you think this man thought he needed? What did he come to Jesus for? Right? What did his friends think he needed? What was abundantly obvious to everybody in the room that this man needed? He's a paralytic in the first century. Being a paralytic is hard today. Imagine in first century Palestine. We can't. It's painful. It is a permanent nightmare. He's not getting married because he can't work, because he can't even support himself. He's lonely. He's at the mercy of friends. He's at the, mer- at the kindness of pastor buyers. He's most likely a beggar. And it's a permanent nightmare. This is his life. Right? What's his great need? It's obvious to everybody. Right? And he's thinking... All right, I heard this guy maybe fixes people. Maybe This is his whole life. Maybe my permanent nightmare, my lifelong nightmare that's irrevocable up to this point, maybe there's a chance of getting it turned around. He's probably even cautiously optimistic. You know, you don't want to get your hopes up. How big of a turnaround would it be him in life if he could walk? He actually probably can't even conceive of that kind of freedom and that kind of change. And, and for a second before we go on in the story, I want you to think about what are the needs that drive you? What is the big thing? Right? 
that the need that if it's met for you, it actually turns your life into what you want it to be. You know, maybe it's something in your life, maybe it's some darkness in your life, some sin, maybe it's pain in your life, maybe it's goals you have professionally, academically, whatever it is, but there, are the, there maybe it's just social matters. You have needs that are driving you every day. We all do. I do. Right? And, and we believe. And they're real needs, and they're not to be diminished. And we think, if that comes in, right, if that gets taken away, if that gets rectified, well, then I'll have what I need to have to be happy, right? This guy's a paralytic. Imagine the turn in life if he can walk again. So imagine somebody in the Bay Area is fixing everything in people's lives. And you go to them and you think, maybe this is it. I get this problem fixed. Jesus makes it awkward because the paralytic guy is lying on the ground in front of him after he's been teaching the Bible for a while. And he says this, My son, your sins are forgiven. And the way I imagine it is, is Peter standing next to Jesus. That's his closest disciple. And Peter's like, Jesus, his legs, he's here He's here for his legs. That's his need. It's his legs. That's what he came for. He came for his legs. How awkward would that moment be when someone gives him something he never asked for, didn't want, and didn't address the main need in his life? What Jesus is doing is he's teaching us about the main thing we need. The forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of God, clemency freedom, a release from the fear and the alienation and the judgment that comes as a just consequence of our sin. The thing that actually at the end of the day, that if that need is met, it actually has the capacity to give us the peace of Ginger Chamlin and the joy of orphans in Caggiato. Because that thing that has the capacity a stronger, more sure capacity to give you peace and contentment than getting all your wildest dreams, that thing is to be known, to be forgiven, and to be loved by your Father. Uh, Ernest Hemingway has a short story called The Capital of the World, and in that story he shares a folk legend in Madrid, Spain. And the folk legend is this. There was a father... um, whose son had caused him kind of great grief. The relationship was broken. His son ran off. And he searched around Spain. He traveled to find his son. And finally, in his kind of last hope of desperation, he placed an ad in the local paper in Madrid called the the El Liberal. Liberal. And the the ad said this. It read, Paco, meet me at Hotel Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. And the way Hemingway tells the legend, he says that the... The following Tuesday, over 800 Pacos showed up at the hotel in Madrid. So much so that the police had to come and disperse the crowd. What drew them? It was the promise of forgiveness. The forgiveness of their father. And forgiveness is not just freedom from the consequences of sin. It's the restoration of our relationship with our Father. Because as long as there's sin between us and God, just like in any relationship, sin divides relationships, right? We've all experienced this with parents, with friends, 
with all of our roommates, like across the board, right? Boyfriends, girlfriends, right? When one person offends the other, maybe you're the offending party, but at times we've also all been the victim in relationships. When sin breaks in, right, the relationships divide. And it can't be the same anymore. You don't have the intimacy, the former intimacy you had, right, until that issue is dealt with. The relationship can never be the same. Here, here's what I want you to see. And this is where, this is where I want you all to grapple with Ginger Chamberlain. And to be honest and, and self-reflective for a moment. The main thing you want at the end of the day, the main thing that if you have, if you have this thing and everything else is stripped away, you have everything. The main thing is to be loved. The main thing in life is to be loved. The reason Ginger Chamberlain can have nothing and have peace is because she actually still had one thing for sure. She had the love of God the Father. And that is everything. And the only way that you know you can be loved is if you're forgiven. Because forgiveness recognizes this, that there are a ton of unlovable things about me. There are a lot of good reasons not to love me. And then in RUF, we're kind of mean sometimes. I'll just be real blunt. There are a lot of good reasons not to love each of you. You know them better than anybody else. And forgiveness recognizes that, but it's God refusing to let those things stop His love. We don't need a God who pretends that we're fine, and validates our lifestyles and our choices. That just caters his ethical system or whatever to the way we want to live our lives. That's not love. That's actually patronizing indifference, which is the furthest thing from love. Now, we think that's love today, but that's not. That's patronizing people. Fine, be who you want to be, right? Are you paralyzed by your failures? Are you paralyzed by the possibility of your failure coming to light? The things you know who you are. The things you know you've done. What forgiveness is, is God saying, I see all of it. I actually see more of it than you see. I see deep into who you are. And I see all the unlovable things. And I forgive you in your mind. This is what Tim Keller says. I've quoted this before, but it's just beautiful. He says, to be loved... But not known is comforting but superficial. That's what we experience a lot, right? Fond of each other but not really known. When people don't really know who we are. But, but to be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right? To be exposed all the way through and not love is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, that's what it's like to be loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Even Ginger losing Knox, even Ginger battling cancer for alone, even Ginger going into death by herself. Why does she do it? With such peace. She was known by the Father and she was loved by the Father. Jesus is saying here, that's our great need. And that's what he offers. So it begs the question, what about the things we did want from him? The things that we know, if we had, we'd just be happy. Right? Because the guy came for his legs. And there's a famous article that appeared in a, in a paper in New York in 
over, uh, about 23 years ago now, written by Cynthia Himmel. And she writes about celebrities, and this is a passage that gets quoted often, maybe you've heard it before. I pity celebrities, I really do. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand, who are bigger in the 90s than they are now, were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. And I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Sylvester Stallone, Bruce Willis, and Barbara Streisand wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose. Because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide for them personal fulfillment and happiness. It happened to them, and they found out they were still them. And the disillusionment turned them into insufferable people. Right? This is the Veruca Salt lesson from Willy Wonka. Right? If you remember, Veruca Salt is walking around telling her daddy at Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, if I'm totally losing you on this, you're just going to think I'm crazy. But are we familiar with the chocolate factory? Yes, yes. Some nods make me feel better about myself. She walks around and tells her dad all that she wants. Right? Her dad acquiesces, and he acquiesces, and he acquiesces. And she gets everything she wants that she thinks will make her happy. And we watch those kind of morality tales and we think about all the other people that are like that. Because it's not us. But maybe we should wonder if that's the way we relate to God. Here's what I want, God. Here's what I want, God. Here's what I want, God. And of course, at the end of the day, the parent who acquiesces to every demand like that they actually eventually lose their relationship with their child. Right? Because the child no longer loves the parent, they just love what the parent affords them. Which means at the end of the day, the parent's just a means, and the parent is no longer an end. And I suspect for a lot of Christians, maybe one reason that it's hard for you to find any love for God in your heart, you're like, I'm a Christian, but I don't know why I don't love Him very much. It might be because you never wanted connection with him. You just wanted him to give you stuff. And you'll never like him very much if that's the case. Because when we relate to God according to his performance of meeting our demands, we're Veruca Salt. And when he doesn't give us everything we ask for, but instead comes and says, My son, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. I know you, I love you, I forgive you, and you have my heart. He's the good parent giving us the one thing that we really need, which is himself. That doesn't mean our needs are illegitimate. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't bring our needs to him. That's not the implication. It is absolutely the broken legs of the paralytic that brings him to Jesus. Just don't be surprised if in his wisdom he instead gives you something better that doesn't give you what you want. It's worth repeating, this is Gospel 101. God can forgive any sin. He can forgive any sin. Nothing is beyond the reach of his capacity to forgive. We have limits in our relationships. Every relationship has it. The godliest, most wonderful marriage, most wonderful friendship has a limit. There's enough sin that can break any relationship. It's not true with God. His forgiveness can cover any sin. 
And I was reading a Catholic journal today, and there's just a great quote. It says, there's no place so dark in the human soul that's too dark for God. And you may be wondering, you may come into a meeting like this, or you may consider not coming to a meeting like this or not coming to church because you think, I like the ideas of Christianity, but I can't call myself a Christian, and I can't identify with this group because my life is a mess. Right? And so Christian-y people are the people who behave really well, but you look at your own behavior and think... It would be wrong for me to say I'm like them, I'm a Christian like them. We think the super-Christians are the people that behave the best. That's just not true. You just can't read the Bible and come to that conclusion. The most joyful Christians are the ones who know that God has seen the really revolting junk in us. And has said, my son or my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Right? Let's go back to the story. The crowd hears Jesus' words and they're suspect, right? It got more awkward. The paralytic guy came to get healing and instead he got, my son, your sins are forgiven. And God gives us the, Jesus gives us the second thing needful right here. He gives us the first thing needful, forgiveness. We don't hear anything tonight, hear that. But then he gives us the second thing needful and that is proof. Because what happens is the scribes, and the scribes are me, right? I went to Bible school, started the Bible for a while, and I'd be doing exactly what they're doing. Okay, that's weird. You can't do that. Right? That's what we'd all do. I've actually been to healing service where I've watched people heal or think they were healing and they, in fact, didn't heal people. And I sat there and thought in my own heart, that's weird. And by the way, I don't think you're allowed to do that. Right? But this is one of those clever moments that are all throughout Scripture that if you don't pay attention to the details that are there... um, Jesus perceives what's going on in their minds and he addresses their thoughts out loud. Right? The reason they're upset is because this. Jesus is presuming to be the one who has the right to forgive. He's actually claiming, in so doing, he's claiming, I am God and it's against me that you've sinned and so I can forgive. And it, it, This is a brief aside, but the Bible makes the assumption that at the end of the day, all of our sin is against God. Even our sin against each other is ultimately against God. Now, here's why. Because in the Bible, we're made in God's image. Right? There's a spark of the divine, His handiwork, His imprint on each of us. When you desecrate or defraud someone's image, what are you really doing? You're really saying what you think about them. It's a silly illustration, and I use it all the time, but high school yearbook, right? You color on somebody's face. First of all, let's recognize this. You are genuinely desecrating the image. You are sinning against the image. But ultimately, the greater sin is against the person whose picture is there, right? That's why you colored on their face. Our sin against each other is ultimately sin against God. Because we're His image bearers. Thus, it's His forgiveness that we ultimately need. And Jesus, by saying... I have the power for to, get, to forgive. The scribes are saying, no, 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 no. If that's true, then you think you're God, and that's crazy. Right? So Jesus answered. Notice, they never verbalize this. They only think it. And Jesus, immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them this. And pay it. I'm going to... We desperately need a y'all version of the Bible because in the New Testament, the word you is sometimes singular and sometimes plural. But I'm going to give you the plural in this text where the Greek shows up in plural when it shows up singular. Pay attention, it's important. Why do y'all question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But so that y'all, 
and they know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive, he turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. This is the important detail. Verse 9 and 10, he's not talking to the paralytic. He's talking to the scribes. Right? Jesus knows. All right, anybody can stand here and say your sins are forgiven. Who knows if I'm God or not? But so that all of y'all may know who's talking, may know who I am, he heals the paralytic. Do you see that he heals the paralytic for them, not for the paralytic? Right? Because he's actually already given the paralytic everything he needs. His healing for the paralytic is not for that guy. That guy has restoration and reconciliation and love of the Father. He's doing fine without legs. He fixes his legs for everybody else in the room. Because we need proof. Because faith is hard. Right? Because hearing that God forgives is too good to be true. Hearing that God comes into this world and gets messy is too good to be true. Hear that God cries when his friends die is too good to be true. Don't you want a God like that? If God if Jesus is God, that's who he is. Because he cries when his friends die. Hearing that God wants to take away all the judgments against you, that's too good to be true. Hearing that God ends the tyranny that your failures have over you is too good to be true. We need proof. And that's what he's offering to the scribes. And that's what you have and we have. Because Luke, who's a doctor, who wrote Acts, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Paul, who wrote numerous first century letters, many of which are in the Bible, the great Pharisee, these two men are relentlessly concerned with historicity and detail and accuracy. And they both attest to this fact that this guy, Jesus, came and died on a cross and rose again from the dead. And when they wrote Acts and when they wrote 1 Corinthians, they said, ask anyone because hundreds of people have seen this reality. Hundreds, if not thousands of people, saw Jesus die. And those same people saw Jesus walk around three days later after he died. The New Testament... What it's intended to be, primarily, this is the purpose of God's Word. If you don't want to wonder how to read it, this is how you should read it. It's supposed to be historical proof that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. And it asks readers, literally, to test it against history. And here's the interesting thing. No one questions the resurrection of Jesus until you know when? Until decades after the thousands of eyewitnesses died. That's a curious historical fact, isn't it? Nobody questions. We don't have records of people questioning Jesus' resurrection until all the eyewitnesses of dead, and there were hundreds of them. So if you want proof that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, historical evidence is wildly in favor of the resurrection. And that's why the Bible is not aphorisms. That's why it's not sayings. That's why it's not successories. You know, the, the, the notion... That what we need is like one or two phrases to kind of get us through the day. Okay, only comfortable, rich, Western, first world people think that you need a clever, motivational saying to get through the day. Right? Dying, guilty people need to know that there's a hope at forgiveness and a hope at resurrection. Right? I need to know. I don't need a clever saying to motivate me to get through the day. I need to know that my guilt can be dealt with and that death will not end me. That's what I need. So don't give me any like 
clever little motivational things. Don't give me some Jesus accessories, right? Y'all, we are dying guilty people. I know you're 18, 19, 20, 21, right? And some grad students beyond those years. Not much, though, right? We're dying guilty people. We don't need clever sayings, y'all. We need evidence that there's hope for forgiveness, that our guilt can be dealt with, and that there could be life. That's what the Bible is to be read for, is to hear that. Read it that way, asking for that. Because what it is, is thousands of years of historical testimony of, you know what? God made promises to people that there's life in Him, there's hope in Him, there's forgiveness in Him. And the whole Bible is dying guilty people finding out over and over again that God forgives sin and God brings life. That's what the Bible is. It's not clever sayings to help you get through a midterm. Buy a poster for that at the poster sale. Okay? This is there's hope for guilty dying people. There's nothing wrong to ask for, with asking Jesus for help with your grades, with help with your loneliness, with help with your hurting body and your broken relationships, your addictions. Bring it all to Him. And He will work in those areas. Maybe not in ways you thought He would, but He'll work in those areas. But the good news is that in the area of the most pressing need, our guilt and our death, you know exactly what He's doing. He's forgiving and bringing you life. That's what you need. I'll close real briefly. How do you get at them? How do you get forgiveness? How do you get life? Earlier in the text, Jesus sees their faith and then says, My son, your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? We think faith is just mentally agreeing to an idea. I agree with that in my head. I'm going to squeeze my eyes really hard and believe, right? It says Jesus sees their faith. The Bible, the Bible never lets faith mean only that, kind of agreeing with an idea in your head. Jesus sees it, which means it's something observable. He sees their faith in actions, right? Faith is something that acts. Faith that doesn't act is not faith. It's an idea that's so powerful that you actually have to act on it. But notice what the act is. It's bringing your deepest need to Jesus and asking Him to heal you. The first act of faith, there's more acts of faith, but the first one and the cardinal act of faith is coming to Jesus and holding out your brokenness and holding out your needs. Confession is the first act of faith. We don't want our failures in the light so we hide them and we justify them. Right in our household, when we catch the girls doing something, or, or they frustrate us, or they, they fight with one another, you know what they do? They hide and they make excuses. Right? That's what we do. We want to sweep away those things in our life, and we want to excuse them. And what we always say is, please, please stop making excuses. Because if you can actually just put on the table, I hit my sister and I've got no excuses, you know what, Elizabeth, I can then say to them, we forgive you, we love you. But as long as they make excuses and hide them, man, what I'm longing to do for my children, not to make them pay the price or feel sad for the things they do in our house, what we long for doing to our children is say, put your stuff out there. Stop hiding it. So I can say that, there's forgiveness for that. For fighting with your sister. Stealing her toys, there's forgiveness for that. Coloring on the wall, we're getting close to the upper bounds of forgiveness, but there's still forgiveness for that, right? You know what happens if they hide all of that? They live in fear of exposure. And they never get to hear the good news of their father or their mother. Faith is not believing really hard that these things are true. 
is bringing our stuff to Jesus, our junk to Jesus, letting the light expose it. And he'll give you what you need. He'll give you what Ginger Chamlin had. He'll give you what these orphans in Kenya had. They found in Jesus what they needed. They had nothing. But in Jesus, they had forgiveness. And that is everything. Let's pray.